Welcome to the Broken Token Podcast. Hey everybody, I'd like to welcome you to episode 115 of the Broken Token Classic Gaming Podcast. I'm your host Brent, and I'll go ahead and address the elephant not in the room. Um, that, that, that was actually kind of rude. Uh, I'll address the, uh, what's missing from the room, which is Whitney. Unfortunately, Whitney and I have had a really, really rough time setting up a recording schedule, but we're not going to let that stop us. We're going to bring all of our listeners, our faithful listeners, and hopefully some new listeners. Maybe we've picked a few up since the last show. We're going to bring you all some new content. In the last show, we ran the first in a series of panel discussions with the folks of Activision. This show will have the second in that series. So I'll, I'll touch on that in a second. What I'm actually going to roll to here, though, speaking of that series, all ties together. That series was recorded at the Music City Multicon 2022. That show is upon us for 2023. When this show hits the uh, your podcast app, you'll have, should have just shy of a month to get yourself together to get to Nashville. The Music City Multicon for 2023 is October 27th through the 29th. It's an awesome show. Whitney and I talk about it quite a bit, as much if not maybe a little bit more than Louisville Arcade Expo. You've got to make the show. It's amazing. David and Julia are doing, and the rest of their crew are doing an unbelievable job expanding the show. There's a huge vendor section, uh, arcade games, pinball machines. Just check out, let me actually make sure I got this right. I'll have Whitney put the link in the show notes, musiccitymulticon.com. I know they're constantly announcing guests, the most recent being actor Danny Trejo. So uh, go and check out check out their site, see who their featured guests are. I, I noticed that, that Whitney and I aren't on there. Maybe we're not, we're going to have to talk to Dave about this, but regardless, uh, we're not featured. I don't know. Oh, well, there's, I mean, we're down in things to do. But it, we'll have to sort that out after the fact. But anyway, check out musiccitymulticon.com. I'm just flipping through the uh, the homepage right now. Daniel Piscina will be there. He is a martial artist and actor who is instrumental in Mortal Kombat. His brother is also going to be there. I've not met his brother. I've met Daniel, but his brother, Carlos Piscina, the same, a martial artist and actor, and he was uh, instrumental in the Mortal Kombat series as well. So many, many guests, announcement co- announcements will continue to roll in the weeks leading up to the show. So make sure you check out the website. Whitney and I will definitely be at the show as a featured guest or not. That remains to be seen, but we will be there. Come see us. We can all hang out, play some games, check out the vendor area, and uh, uh, some of these amazing guests that that the the Music City Multicon crew is bringing there into Nashville. I did mention Louisville Arcade Expo. I checked their site a little earlier today. They have not yet announced the show dates for 2024. Generally, it's going to be in March. I'm assuming it will be this year. Don't hold me to that because as soon as I say that, it'll change. It'll be upon us before we realize it. So just kind of keep an eye out. Just check their site as you get an opportunity, louisvillearcade.com. Of course, we'll talk about that here on the show as we get closer. Hopefully, we can get the guys on the show again. Kind of get us a preview and everything. Generally, around the first years when we look to do that. So uh, sit tight and 
uh, for that. So Whitney did send me a little detail here to make sure I had everything correct as to panel discussion that we're going to run in this show. So let me kind of just give everybody an overview here. We feature the second installment of our three-part series of interviews with David Crane, Gary, and Dan Kitchen. This was recorded at the 2022 Music City Multicon in Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee. The panel is entitled The Absolute Entertainment Years, and we picked up the discussion in 1986 with David, Gary, and Dan recounting the history and events that transpired with the shuttering of Activision and the formation of a new publishing company known as Absolute Entertainment. We delve into the development of games for new platforms such as the NES, the Super NES, Game Boy, and hear stories behind the creation of, cl- the creation of classics like A Boy and His Blob trouble on Bloblonia. <laughs> now, I personally, side note, Bryn here, I have heard of A Boy in His Blob. I've never played it. I, I I know the the mechanic of the game, but I don't think I'd ever seen and definitely ever tried to read the full title of that game. So r- really, really cool. Uh, Whitney continues, we then learn about the eventual downfall of Absolute and the transition to Skyworks technologies as the industry moved to mobile and web web-enabled gaming. So yeah, you missed the first part of the series entitled The Atari and Activision Years. Definitely scroll uh, scroll back, pardon me. Definitely jump back in episode. You can find that in episode 114. And then the this show following this show, uh, hopefully Whitney and I will be able to get back together and actually record live for everybody, uh, live recorded. We will include three in this series and then that is going to be called Audacity Games. Whitney also wanted me to make sure to mention, if you're interested in seeing the video recordings of these panels, then check out the Music City Multicon's YouTube channel as the videos are posted there. Definitely a special thanks to Dave Corrigan for the opportunity to conduct the panels and for the audio and video production. So with that, I will bid everyone adieu. Hopefully, we Whitney and I can get together and record a show for everyone here soon. And uh, in the interim, sit back, relax, and enjoy part two of the series with the Activision founders from the Music City Multicon. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I want to thank you for coming to this session. This is, uh, this is considered session number two of three in a series here at the 2022 Music City Multicon. Uh, we are fortunate enough to have Mr. Gary Kitchen, Mr. David Crane, and Mr. Dan Kitchen from Activision and uh, Absolute Entertainment as well with us here. And uh, we're going to pick this up as just a, a bit of a continuation from the session uh, from yesterday. Just real quick by show of hands, how many people were here? Here for last night's session. Okay, okay, we've, we've got a couple, two or three. Okay, so we'll go ahead and uh, do just a, a quick intro real quick. Uh, just first up, my name is Whitney Roberts. I'm the co-host of the Broken Token Classic Gaming Podcast. And uh, here to my right is Mr. Gary Kitchen. And gentlemen, would you all mind to do a quick intro, please? So I'm Gary Kitchen. I entered the video game uh, business in the late 1970s. Uh, 1982, I joined this gentleman to my left at a small little company he had founded called Activision, which was small little at some point in time. <laughs> and he and I did a number of uh, Atari 2600 games. David Crane. Um, yeah, I worked at Atari in 1977 with Nolan Bushnell. 
And Atari was fun to work for for a while, and then about two years later, it was no longer fun to work for. And uh, some of my cronies and I spun off and founded Activision. Um, Activision was basically the first third-party developer of video game software. Prior to that, Atari did software for the Atari computer. Uh, Mattel did, com did games for their Intellivision. You know, Coleco did for ColecoVision, et cetera. Activision was the first third-party publisher of video games. And uh, that's the way the whole world works today. Everybody works for a third-party publisher now. But we were the first. At Dan Kitchen, I started with my brother Gary in the early 1980s. Worked with him at an engineering firm in New Jersey where he back-engineered the Atari 2600 and taught uh, me how to program it. And then we uh, joined Activision in 1982. I did uh, a couple of original games and then a slew of ports. And uh, then uh, we went on to talk about the company that we're gonna discuss now. Yeah, th thank you, gentlemen. Certainly appreciate it. So, as I said uh, at, at the top of the uh, at the top of the video, this is number two in a series of three. So, uh, if you have not uh, if you have not been able to see the first video, then it will be posted here on YouTube. We'll make sure that we have uh, links in, in the description of the video as well. So, so gentlemen, thank you thank you so much for your time. Um, we we wrapped the last session uh, with Dan. Some of what you were mentioning, we we had kind of talked through. Uh, I think a lot of the, a lot of the years there at Activision. And at some point, uh, I don't know if you all would qualify it as around the video game crash or if it was, uh, say, six months, a year, two years after. Um, it, it seemed like Activision had switched from a lot of original games to, to, uh, to Dan, as you'd mentioned, to, to doing some ports. And then um, Absolute Entertainment came onto the scene. Uh, would you all mind, this is a bit of a two-parter, would you all mind to talk a bit about some of the last games that you did for Activision? And then, uh, Gary, I'd really appreciate if you could lead off, really, what, what led you to leave Activision and start Absolute? So, uh, you mentioned the crash. Yeah. Um, we, uh, Dan and I joined Activision in 82. I had done Donkey Kong for Coleco uh, at the beginning of that year. Before that, the previous year, I had done Space Jockey. It was my first 2600 game. So, mid-1982, we joined Activision, and that was really the peak of the industry at that moment. I mean, that was the heyday. That was um, Roman Empire. You throw money up in the, throw cartridges up in the sky and money drains down. I mean, it was, that was a ridiculous year. That was the recipe, huh? That was it. Yeah. So um, 20 or 30 other venture capital startups also figured out the, the money formula. So they all joined the market by Christmas 83. There were... 30 companies instead of Atari, Activision, and iMagic. There were 30 other companies that were funded, hired programmers, no one knew how to make games, and they all filled cartridges with random numbers and sold them to Toys R Us and Walmart and KB Toys. And by the end of Christmas of 19. 83, it was a bloodbath. Yeah. Because nothing sold. I, I think we hear that a lot of that called shovelware. I shovelware, guess. Is that yes. where that term came from, you yeah. think? Okay. So Decathlon or Pitfall 2 comes out. I had done a game called Pressure Cooker. John Van Risen in my office did Hero. These are all really good games. Mm -hmm. And they come out Christmas of 83. 
kid wants, you know, decathlon, father walks into Toys R Us, lo and behold, there's a barrel at the front of the aisle and there are Atari cartridges for $2 each. And he goes, well, damn, I can buy 20 of these for the price of decathlon and fill the Christmas tree. So that's what he does. And we thought we were buffered from it because we really felt that we put much more time and energy into the quality of our games. And that even if the market had some bad players, it wouldn't affect us. Little did we know. So 1984 came, there were 30 million cartridges not sold. Uh, Toys R Us and Walmart and all those other people, if you don't know how retail works, I'll just tell you in two seconds. If I go ship 100,000 units of something to Walmart and it doesn't sell, Walmart comes to me and says, you're going to price protect me. I was supposed to sell it for 20 bucks. I sold it for two bucks. I'm not taking the hate you are. So I'm, I want the money back that I paid you or you're never going to sell to Walmart again. That's the way the industry works. Well, that would have worked in 1984, except all these companies, when they called them to get their money back, weren't there anymore. So hmm. Toys R Us, Walmart, and KB Toys licked their wounds and said, don't ever say the word video game again to I'll us. See. They were out, they out were of the out. industry. Wow. Done. So then we went through this transition period, 84, 85, where Activision decided, number one, People don't want games, so let's do creativity software, and people aren't buying cartridges anymore, so let's do them on computers. So we switched over to computers. I did a game, I did Gary Kitchen's Game Maker, which was a creative tool where you could make video games. Uh, David, um, didn't you didn't fall for the creativity thing. David still did <laughs> games because he was David. Yeah. Dan did some work on computers. And uh, let's take you guys through the end of that, and then we'll talk about how we all left. Yeah. Well, I stayed at Activision until 87. So. Yes, that's yes. true. You were there until 87. So I'm, I'm Dan, yeah, you're right. Dan and I left. We left in 87. 85. 85? 85. 85. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, basically, we had five or six designers in our office in New Jersey. We were a satellite office. And um, Activision was a, was, was a train wreck at that point. All the people that we loved and worked with, like Jim Levy, were gone. And they brought in these, you know, a series of nincompoops to, to, to be the executives. How, how many people were at Activision at that point? I mean, had, had it reached like its maximum capacity due to the swell of the industry or was it shrinking back down due to the crash? No, it was, it was shrinking. Okay. Well, at, at its biggest, I think it had about 300 employees. Okay. That would be 82, 83 time frame. In the 81 type era, we had $60 million in sales with 60 employees, which I thought was kind of an interesting benchmark. It, yeah, that a million is. dollars in revenues for each employee that we had. Yeah. We grew up to about 300 million and 300 employees. Um, and when the, the video game business crashed, um, the board of directors stepped in and basically got rid of my selection for CEO. I mean, we, we hired Jim Levy. We brought Jim Levy in, the four of us technical guys, as to be our CEO. And when the board of directors um, booted him out, the writing was on the wall. But what Jim had just done is very interesting. He saw how bad the industry was. We had nothing to do with why video games weren't selling. We were still doing really high quality product. 
And um, thank you. Sir. So what, oh, what he you. did is Appreciate he said, let me look at what the business is like this year and what it's going to be like for the next few years. And he, just like he did the first time when he designed the company as CEOs do, he wrote a business plan for a new company, uh, kind of like a, a phoenix rising from the ashes. Okay. But it's still called Activision. But instead of just laying off 30% of the people, which is what people seem to do, mm -hmm. he wrote a new business plan and said, these are the people we need for a business this size. Okay. And so uh, he, so he was planning to right size it, seeing yeah. what was happening. He, yep. and, yeah. And based on predictions of how long it would take for the video game business to become healthy again. Mm -hmm. Right. And then he took the people that worked at Activision and said, you are a perfect fit for this position in this new company. You are a perfect fit for this position in this new company. And once you've populated the new company, you had people who were no longer good fits. And those were the people who were laid off. So it was actually a brilliant strategy. I don't know if it's been, if it was commonly done that way, but it was great. However, he was a little optimistic in how long it would take for the video game business to become healthy again. And so the, the board of directors finally said, we're tired of this. You know, we're tired of watching you lose money. We're tired of explaining in cocktail parties why our pet company, Activision, is no longer at the top of the heap, right? Mm -hmm. And so they ended up um, booting him out. So I knew I wasn't going to be there for long. But that's when all this happened is these other people came in and said, oh, let's not sell video games. Let's sell home computer software. Let's call ourselves a productivity software company instead of... Activision, the biggest name in video games. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. just stupid. Does anybody in the audience know what Activision renamed itself to for a year or two before it went back to Activision? It was mediagenic. It, it sounds like a disease. <laughs> it yeah. certainly doesn't sound like Activision. Donate to the Mediagenic I'm Foundation. Sorry, you but know, you have Mediagenic. <laughs> so, so this this guy came in who was a nincompoop, and he and he changed the company's name to Mediagenic. Wow. Where he he didn't understand the name with the rainbow logo. I mean, this was iconic for yeah. games. What are you doing? So anyway, they came to me in 85 and said, we want to cut some of your staff. And I said, oh, come on now. These are good guys. They're making great kids. No, we had cuts. So I said, rather than cutting some of the staff, why don't we all leave? And we'll just contract with you and do games for you. And they said, sold. And that was it. So we just shut down, went somewhere else, got a really lousy office because we were now startup and started doing games for them under contract. And that was in 85. Dave stayed and had two more fun years of Activision before he left. So is, is that the reason why if I look at the, I guess the, the published list for each one of the three of you, is that why some, some games still showed as being in Activision in some years, some games that you released were, were an absolute for yeah. other years because you were, you were essentially just kind of going back and forth between both companies for the course of a few years. Yeah, the plan like. was to do games and have Activision publish them. Okay. And then we said, well, let's do games and publish them under our own brand. Mm -hmm. We need a brand. Absolute entertainment became our brand. So then we had both games we had done on contract and, then games we'd publish under Absolute. Basically, yeah. you do games under contract to keep the lights on. Okay. You do contract work when you any time you have a small company, you do this contract work to keep the pay the bills, 
And then you do publishing, which is a much more risky business. You might not sell any, mm-hmm. you know? No it takes a lot longer to get paid. Yeah, yeah I see. Yeah. Yep. So both strategies were in play. Okay. Right. At, at some point, the Atari 2600 had a little resurgence because everyone who put it away in 1983 grew up a little bit more and then their younger brother picked it up. And actually after we left, I think I was contracted to do Kung Fu Master. Mm-hmm. And then we actually did work for Atari or I did Crossbow, Crossbow. the 2600. Yeah. So we basically did work for both Activision and Atari. And hey, Activision, Atari and Absolute. So by 1987-88, we had heard from Toys R Us who fortuitously, their corporate headquarters was like two miles from our office in Northern New Jersey. And we had a guy who regularly visited their sales people or their buyer, it's called, who filled their shelves. And the guy said one day, I know you're gonna laugh, but you don't have any Atari games, do you? Cause you know, no one told the consumer that the video game industry had crashed. The consumer still wanted to play the games. No one told them Atari's out of favor. So suddenly Toys R Us had this demand for Atari games. So we said, yeah, we can make some Atari games. So we made some for them and they sold well. And then we made some for Activision because Activision saw how we did, did a couple for them. Then Atari called us and said, we don't have anybody who works for us and knows how to do Atari games. Could you do some for us? So at one point we were doing in this little basement in Midland Park, New Jersey, yeah. we and at Dave's place in California, we were doing all the Atari cartridges for every publisher on the planet for about two years. Yeah, because we were the only people who knew how to, who remembered how to do it. Yeah, we were the only people who knew how to program the system. And then wow. we ended up, then Dave did uh, skateboarding, and we started doing some for ourselves during that period. So we did skateboarding, title match wrestling, heroes, uh, baseball, Tomcat F eighteen. Um, those were the absolute titles. And then you did, and then Dave did Ghostbusters on the C64 while he was still at Activision. And I guess while we were still at Activision. Maybe. And then that eventually got ported to 26. And then I did the 2600 for that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Dan, if I remember, that was still released under Activision's name. Yeah. Ghostbusters, absolutely. Yes. Because they had the license. I see. Yeah. So this was this period from like 85 to 88 where we had one foot in each company. Uh, okay, much. okay. Okay, that, that helps because when when you look at, I, I think the historical record, it you want to read it like there was just a clean switch. No, it and was, it's, it's yeah. like in X year, Gary Kitchen formed absolutely, and, and it's like, there's gotta be, it, it can't just be that cut and dried because, right. because ultimately there, there has to be so much more going on we, around. We that. actually had, uh, we left Activision and actually formed our little development company called Imagineering. And that was the heading, uh, that was the company which did all the client or contract work. And then when we decided we wanted to publish our own games, we needed a label, mm-hmm. we needed a name to, to publish them under. And we used the word absolute. And eventually we stopped using Imagineering and everything was done under the, the brand label of absolute entertainment. Now you will notice a trend here. And I don't know how many of you have heard this story, but it needs to be told. Yeah. Is the guys from Atari spun off and created Activision, which comes earlier in the alphabet. And the guys from Activision spun off and started Accolade. That was Al Miller's company with Bob Whitehead. After they left, we spun off and started Absolute. (laughs) 
And about the same time we started Absolute, Greg Fishback went to the East Coast and started Acclaim. So everyone had to, every subsequent company after Atari had to beat the previous company <laughs> to an earlier listing in the alphabet. So we went, when we went to the trade show and the companies were all listed, we got earlier billing each yeah. one yeah. of the new companies. And nobody ever picked our part. No, we looked at Aardvark, but, you know, it didn't work. And you'll notice that the company we just started is called Audacity Games. So we're all still with the A company. It's an A thing. Yeah. Yeah. So out of curiosity, how many how many folks went over with with you, Gary and Dan, to Absolute before before David came over? No, nobody, because it was just our, our East Coast office. It was just, okay. It was, we didn't get anybody from the West Coast. So it was like five people. Okay. So, so with that, I mean, did, did you get the opportunity to, I guess, kind of redraw Activision as absolute or your ideal vision of what, what Activision could have, should be, could be, would be? And did you have a lot of, did you have problems like getting funding and things at that point? Or did you do it all grassroots? We bootstrapped it all. So, so we, we didn't have the luxury of doing it the way Activision did it because we didn't have VC money. You're okay. not going to do the best quality box, the best quality manual. You're not going to do television advertising. We bootstrapped it. So we worked our tail off and and had a really disgustingly horrible office <laughs> In a that basement. I still think about today. Was it the same Was it the same basement that you talked no, about? No, it's the basement. It was it, the basement. It was oh, not yes. Gary's basement. No, it was, we, no it's another basement. Basement right? under a, no, an optician. Okay. Yes, the basement was under an optician in Midland Park, New Jersey. <laughs> you went down these rickety old stairs into this musty basement with no windows. And that's where we worked for a few years. Boy, was it brutal. But as David said, you do contract work to keep the lights on. And then while you've got some guys doing contract work to pay the salaries, somebody else there says, I, I'm going to do a game that we're going to publish. And then you have this one guy do a game. Because you, all the money's in publishing. Right. So that you eventually put out and then you make a little bit of money. Then you're free to do another game or two. But still do some contract work over here to make sure the lights stay on. So, so you all had to prime, literally had to reprime the pump. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, in the middle of all this, an iconic event occurred. <laughs> Nintendo. Nobody had told Nintendo the video game industry was dead either. I mean, that that didn't get to Japan, and they had this. The the Famicom in Japan had sold the bazillion units, and they were sitting on gold in Japan, and they kept saying, "Let's bring it to North America." And they brought it to North America at the end of 1985, right when Toys R Us and Walmart had sold off the last of the <laughs> of the trash from it, the front of the aisle. And it swore it all off and forever. It swore it all off and yeah. walked in. And they got chased out into the parking lot and sent home. Once they got a look at it, it was a video game system. So Nintendo changed it from a video game system to an entertainment system. They attached a robot to it. They called it an entertainment system. They weren't cartridges. They were packs. Did as much as they could to distance it, went back to Toys R Us, and Toys R Us said, we'll do a test market in New York area only, Christmas of 85, any unit that doesn't sell, uh, you pay us back for. So it's 100% consignment, we'll try it in one part of the country. They brought the NES out, it blew off the shelves, just forget it, blew off the shelves. And it was sold out post-Christmas. So now, all of a sudden, there was an industry again. Well, in California, 
Somebody told that to Bruce Davis, who was the guy who had come to replace Jim Levy. And he said, we're not in a game business anymore. And while he said that, his vice president, um, uh, Greg, Fishback. Greg Fishback, was in the next room. And he heard this and said, we're not going to follow that Nintendo wave. And he said, no, Greg, we're not in the video game business anymore. And Greg said, see ya. Got on an explained, went to New York, opened a claim, which ended up being a gigantic video game publisher. Yes. He was smart enough to go to Nintendo and say, sign us up. Now, the thing, the thing Nintendo did that really helped save the industry was they put strict, you know, strict rules. Since they were the only group manufacturing the games for the hardware, mm-hmm. you had to buy them through them. And so you couldn't just willy-nilly make a game and put it out for the Nintendo like 30 other people did for the Atari. Yeah. So you had to go to Nintendo and Nintendo said, you know, I have so many cartridge chips. I'm going to give you 50,000 and you 10,000 and you 100,000. And they regulated how many units could come out. So they built the industry slowly and the retailers got confidence back in the industry as it slowly grew. And they really helped the resurgence completely of the video game business by doing that. I, yep. I, I always remember the the Nintendo's official seal of quality, yes. and, and that seemed like that was a, um, I guess a, a a sponsored item that you would see there on on the cartridge box, and it would say, okay, if that wasn't there, then it may yes. not be the best of game. It was the gold seal of approval. The gold, the gold seal of approval, yes. And you couldn't put a cartridge out that didn't have it on it. I see. Uh, Nintendo wouldn't let you. They had to approve every game. Yeah, they And, and you know, the, a lot of people in the industry hated this. But the fact is, the industry needed a little bit of discipline for a few years. Right, right. To, to get back the confidence of the retail community. Yeah. So, so with that, so with the Nintendo coming onto the scene, then how, how did Absolute look at, look at that new platform? What, what decision did you all choose to make in order to start to develop and publish for, for the NES? And uh, just knowing what I know, is that the time that, that, that David came over at that point? It, was that really the catalyst event or what, David, what, what, what led you to come back over to, or to come over to Absolute? Well, I stayed at Activision a couple of years longer trying to save the company and, uh-huh. um, wasn't able to do anything about it. So I left in 1987. And I went to a a startup that had just been created by Hasbro Toys. And they were doing a fabulous new video game project that did uh, interactive video that you could could watch live streaming video and make decisions and change. It looked like Dragon Slayer. And it was a consumer product and it worked on a, a VHS tape that did not have to seek and change it was a linear format, that, hmm. very, very interesting technology, patented technology to make all that work. And we got to within the time we were going to actually be manufacturing the box and the box turned out to be too expensive and Hasbro, Hasbro just dropped the project. You remember those <laughs> due, days? Due to the cost you, of the box? Those days? Well, well, no, not the box, I meaning the oh, product. Yeah, oh, it oh, was oh, really, I, I think if I remember correctly, it was RAM. RAM was, was cost a fortune. Day, those days when there were no DRAMs to be found. I don't know if anybody remembers that, if you were in the industry, to know that. But dynamic RAMs went from, you know, $5 per chip to $100 per chip. Okay. And it took $2 billion to make a dynamic RAM manufacturing facility, and there weren't enough of those. And so everybody started building them. So there was a period of time where 
the cost of RAM was so high because of all the PCs being made that um, products were, you know, completely unable to be sold for a reasonable price. I think our our price, our wholesale price for this box was $100, which means you can sell it for a couple hundred dollars at retail. And it went, the price went to $400 in one month, you know. Mm -hmm. And that meant it would have to be sold for almost $1,000. And it wasn't that good of a product. It was a $200 product. It was not a $1,000 product. So they just walked away from it. And uh, at that time, uh, these guys had done, uh, gotten absolute entertainment well established and were doing some of the contract work and also mm -hmm. doing some of the publishing work. And so I just, you know, Gary joined me at one time. I turned around and joined Gary. Yeah. And um, Dave called me and said, I'm available. And I said, all right. <laughs> the band's back together. Huh? <laughs> yeah, no, don't need to hear anything else. <laughs> and that was it. Dave came back. And um, as Gary has said, we've worked together since 19... 82 right almost continuously except for that two except year, for the two-year two year ISIS at, okay. uh, at Hasbro's startup company now and in that entire time I've been in California and he'd been in New Jersey yeah. until recently yeah yeah so the interesting thing about how we got into Nintendo is is we weren't as clueless as the CEO of Activision we heard the Nintendo noise and we said well, we got to get in this but we're we're technical people we make games we publish too, but we make it. So we wanted to make games to the platform. So I made a phone call and I got an audience up at Nintendo in Redmond and they just set up this big office. This was their start mm -hmm. in the US. Mm -hmm. And we met with a woman who was in charge of licensing and her job was to sign up publishers. And she had signed up Acclaim first. And then there were other people signing up. A lot of Japanese publishers coming over, Konami and Dates, and But then they were signing up US publishers. And we came up and said, we want to be a developer. And she said, oh, you want to publish? No, we want to be a developer. She said, well, we don't need developers. She said, there's a thousand games in Japan. The, the unit's been out for 10 years. She said, you want to be a publisher? And I said, yeah, well, fine, we'll be a publisher, but we want to make games. And she said, you don't have to. <laughs> I said, yeah, but, yeah, but you don't, the <laughs> Japanese culture games aren't all going to work in the U.S. market. And she said, no, nah, no. Nah. So I went back three months later and three months later and three months later, and they got tired of my face. So eventually, about a year later, I showed up, had a meeting with her, and she just shoved the piece of paper across and said, you can be a developer. We were the first... Western Hemisphere people to sign up to develop NES cartridges. She said, now there are a few problems, but you want it, you ask for it, here it is. Sign up to be a developer. We only have development systems in Japanese, and they're $30,000 each. Ooh, ouch. And that's all we got. And I said, yeah, but I, I have David Crane. So, <laughs> so how about you let us engineer our own development system? We'll give you one David Crane for... Yeah. Yeah. So, so they agreed. They said, if you can make your own development system, fine. Because no one in the U.S. is going to work with a Japanese development system. So we engineered our own development system the same way Dave engineered the Blue Box when, we st when Activision you. started. Thank you. Yes. And we went to Nintendo and said, all right, we've made our own development system. Will you approve it? They did. And then we started selling development systems to all the people who signed up in Western Hemisphere because we had the only English language one.
So through complete perseverance and being a pain in the butt, we got them to sign us up as a developer. And then the developer industry fl flourished after that. Then, then Gary got a call from Greg Fishback and Acclaim and said, you ever heard of a little show called The Simpsons? <laughs> and he'll take it from there. Yeah. And um, well, that was, which was first, The Boy and His Blob or The Simpsons? Simpsons? Simpsons was first. Simpsons was first. Yeah, so he called up and said, Did you, have you ever seen The Simpsons? And I said, no, because it wasn't a show yet. It was Tracy Ullman. It was on a Tracy Ullman show. It was shorts. He said, it's going to be a show. It's first episodes in a couple of weeks. Watch it. Give me a call. So I watched it, and... Um, I, I, I'm divorced and remarried, so this is a story back with my first wife, who was a wonderful person, but very conservative and very religious. And when this episode ended, she said, God, I would never work on that product. <laughs> and, I, and I called Greg and said, sign me up. Well, you know what that first episode was? It was the Simpsons family is dysfunctional, so they decide to go to a psychologist. And the psychologist uses shock yeah, therapy. Yeah, that's a brilliant right. point. Yeah. Okay. And so they wire each one up and give buttons to other family members. And I want you to understand that you will cause harm to this person you love if you push this button. And so, right. and Bart goes, and so they yeah. just start zapping each other. And Gary calls me and when he's making this decision. And I said, you know, this is kind of teetering on the edge. It could go one way or the other. And uh, yeah, I wasn't sure. If yeah, this was it gonna, was really it was risky for, for that time, time period. It was really risky. Yeah. So before I made a decision, I called a friend of mine from college who had gone to Columbia University and had a master's in screenwriting. And he was very plugged into the industry and he knew everything about everything having to do with that industry. And I said, have you ever heard of The Simpsons? And he did Matt Groening, blah, 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 James L. Brooks, producer, da, 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 da. I said, you want a job? So we hired him. And he came over and he and I managed the product creatively. We went and met with Matt Groening and James L. Brooks and we went through the characters and what are we going to do and what game. And we created Bart versus the Space Mutants, which came out in, I don't know, 91 maybe? On the NES. It was a huge, huge success. Great, great game. And a lot of it is, uh, goes to Barry Marks, who was my friend who came on and creatively managed that product. Barry died a few years later at the age of 40, which was very sad, but he, he has a long legacy of great work in the game industry after we brought him in uh, at that point. He's the guy who could tell you who won and who took second and third place best picture in every Oscars <laughs> from the beginning of time. You know, right. yeah, <laughs> and he was the one that went into the meeting with James L. Brooks and and Matt Groening and could speak their language, and and really understood what they were looking for. And um, it was it was great. It was a great partnership all around. And I thank Greg for giving us uh, the trust to give me the family jewels to go off and do that. Very tough game to make. We're on a very hard schedule. Greg went and promised everybody he was going to ship it for Christmas which wasn't true. And it really turned into a very hard project to finish. But we ended up doing that in three or four more Simpsons games. So we lived Simpsons for two or three years between NES and Game Boy. So, and they weren't absolute. So that lucrative business was stealing from our absolute business. 
So we needed a big absolute title. I had published Battle Tank on the NES, which was a moderate success. We also did Stealth ATF, was Jet Jet Fighter game for Activision, which I worked on. And then David, we said to Dave, okay, you know, we're we now need, we're now going to publish games. We need the big hit. We need we the big hit. Yeah. And Dave's three thousand miles away from the office. And one day the phone rings, and Dave said, "I'm going to send you this file, and uh, download it, and give me a call." So I send this file, and there's this little boy standing there, and he's got this fat little marshmallow next to him, <laughs> and he said, "Push the button." And I push the button and this little thing flies up and comes down and the little guy catches it in his mouth and then he goes and turns into a ladder because it was a licorice jelly bean, which was a ladder. And he said, the guy carries jelly beans and each jelly bean represents a tool in his toolkit and you go on an adventure you and the blob, and the blob turns into tools based on what jelly beans you feed them. And I get goosebumps thinking about it because it was so damn brilliant. I mean, it was just brilliant. Well, you know, there were, I mean, Pitfall was one of the first platform games and sort of an adventure, and there were adventure games on the PC, and you would have an inventory of tools, and you'd pick these things up, and you know, Gosvall played adventure games with tools and such. And I hated the fact that you had to leave the context of the game and break the paradigm to go and look up a tool menu and decide what I'm going to use now is this gun or this yeah. knife and whatever. And then you come back to the game. So I said, I'm going to create a tool using adventure game where it's actually a sidekick who becomes your toolbox. And you do that by selecting a color. I mean, at least you had, you did still have to select a flavor of jelly bean, but it was all, all done right there on the screen in the same context. And so I decided to create this tool using adventure game. And um, I had been inspired by a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Uh, it was called the Herculoids back in the 1970s, early 70s, I think. And they had these shape-shifting blobs from the planet they were living on. And I thought it was always kind of cool to have a shape-shifting blob. Called the Schmoosh or something? Do all the stuff for Shmoo, you. you know. I think Schmoo. The Schmoo, maybe. It was yeah. Gloop, Shmoo, Gloop yeah. and Gleep were the, uh, oh. the two blobs. Um, so anyway, all that inspiration plus tool using adventure game. And I put that in the demo was actually pretty cool. I, I polished it up before I sent it off as a proof of concept. And then the funniest part about that whole thing is you need a backstory now. So, okay. So this blob comes to earth from a planet, let's call it Blobalonia. And the reason the blobs, <laughs> the blobs eat, uh, jelly beans is because they, you know, they're addicted to, to candy and fast foods. And because they're addicted to candy and fast foods, the planet Blobalonia is running out of vitamins. And so the blob comes to Earth and he enlists the help of the boy and they go down into a tunnel that looks kind of like Pitfall 2. And they go down into these caverns and they collect gold and diamonds so they can come back up to a health food store and buy vitamins, <laughs> turn the blob... <laughs> but turn the blob into a rocket but this ship. didn't really happen <laughs> turn the blob into a rocket ship fly off to blobalonia put the vitamins into a turn the blob into this tool called a vita blaster where he shoots vitamins at all these things that vitamins kill them because they're junk food and he eventually <laughs> saves the or no he doesn't save the princess until the later game but he um, right 
vanquishes the evil emperor who has hoarded all the vitamins from all the people and you know it's you know you tell this story and they just look at you and said what have you been smoking and, and then <laughs> and then and we weren't smoking anything and then gary looked at dave i think through the phone and said uh, can we do it for this christmas and i don't think christmas was very far away it was unfortunately nintendo had these ironclad deadlines if you want to ship a game for Christmas, we need final code at our office in Redmond, Washington on May 30th. This was middle of April, six weeks. And if you don't have it there, you miss Christmas. We won't make your game for Christmas. It'll come out after Christmas. Right. Don't talk to us if you get it on June 3rd. No flexibility. No flexibility. So I said to Dave, anyway, in a world, we could do this game in six weeks. Sounds impossible to me. And we decided that one way to facilitate it would be for me to drop everything I was doing and work on it with Dave. So the two of us would co-develop it. And that Dave would leave the anguish of California and come to the beautiful uh, environment in New Jersey and live in a flop house for six weeks, a block from the office. It was a... Uh, 80-year-old Victorian. We called it Grandma's House. That's yeah, where Dave, Dave lived house. in Grandma's House. So he would go, walk down there and sleep every night, get up in the morning and walk up the hill in Glenrock, New Jersey, and go up to the second floor of the video store and work on it night and day. For they were no weeks. longer underneath the optometrist. They were over an X-rated video store. Yes, we had, <laughs> we had graduated to the second floor above an X-rated video store. And we were directly, directly directly next to a train line going to New York. Oh, I mean, literally my so painful. the train yeah. was like where that pole is there. So I'd be sitting on the phone all of a sudden, <laughs> and I'd say, could you hold on a minute? <laughs> the train would go whipping by. So, so they really came you out. think the video game business is glamorous. Yeah, it's not yet glamorous. Six weeks. Not yet. <laughs> we, we, we took everybody on the um, company that wasn't doing something else and we put them on the game. And it was hell, but we, quote, finished it in six weeks. And, and I think yesterday we told the story. Yes. This was before FedEx that we had to get this cartridge to Nintendo on that day. And so in preparation, what we did is we took a development system and a guy and flew him to a hotel right across the street from Nintendo's office in Redmond, Washington. And he sat there the last few days of development while we were fixing the game and fixing bugs and Dave and Gary were working around the clock. And we ended up sending him the code over a phone line, which took probably eight hours at that point. Probably overnight. Probably overnight bar modem. in 1,200 no, bar. No, we're only sending the object code. Oh. Yeah, no, yeah, not source yeah, it was, code. Right, right. Object it was a small code. file. It only took two hours. But I believe, the, I believe the, the engineer walked into Nintendo the last possible day before the deadline and gave them the game, and we made Christmas amazingly. That was fun. So, uh, it, yes, I mean, and it's it's a great game. I mean, it's got so much charm. It's got so much personality. Uh, it's always been one of my favorites. I, I'll, I'll say that for sure. It was actually able to 
get it again, boxed and everything like that. And it's like, oh, I kind of treasure it now because I was able to reacquire it from, from my youth. But um, just out of curiosity, you say you put the, the whole company on it. So, so David, for, for Boynton's Blob, were you doing just the main game programming and other folks were working on sound and, and, and uh, I guess, sprites and things like that? Or did you do the, the bulk of it or how did that work yeah, out? I, what I did was a system that allowed Gary and I to work together um, so everything that had to do with generating the character, the backgrounds, all that kind of stuff, were in the system. And then I did the caverns and all of that layout and all of that coding. And that let Gary work on Blobalonia. So he was sharing my base system code that was handling all the sprites and all the objects and that sort of thing. But he was laying out whole new worlds and new, new tasks, new enemies that would bounce around and everything and things you would shoot and duck and dodge. Um, then we had a couple artists, including our best artist working on it, you know, every minute of the day. Um, we had sound effects developers. So this is our first Nintendo product. Mm -hmm. So we had to have a lot of our drivers. We had to make the new drivers and the new... We had this programmer who had come from another planet. Yes, he did. And uh, <laughs> walked in right before the project started and he was such a brilliant programmer. And we said, how do you feel like writing this compression system so that we could take, you know, this much graphics and fit it in one eighth the size? And he said, I could do that. So we left him alone and he created this tool to compress everything and it was absolutely brilliant. So yeah, we, we rallied the troops. That's, I mean, it's, it's amazing to think that that, that style and that classic game just came out of five to six weeks worth of work. How, how, how did, it wasn't five or six weeks worth of work. Yeah. It was five or six weeks of time. Okay, fair enough. I, I, stand, I stand humbly corrected there. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. How did you all handle working with the Nintendo after it was submitted? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it, at least the stories that I've heard you know, for, for fixing bugs along the way after, you know, after the game was done. Um, I mean, was Nintendo easy to work with if you had to go back and do a do-over? Oh, my boy. Oh, God. So, anyway, I had this relationship with Juan. There were no do-overs in Nintendo. <laughs> I had this relationship with Juan. That's the reason I, why I asked. I met with her like five times trying to get the license. So, anyway, we submitted on May 30th. And we're like, we hear nothing. Nothing for like a month, month and a half. And we're like... What the heck? What, what's going on? And then Wana calls me. Uh, like a month and a half in or two months in. It was in. September. It was way out there. Well, so so they wanted they, they wanted in May, but you don't hear back don't from, hear them from until September. September? And Wana calls me and says, Wow. I just want to tell you that a boy in a blob is the most favorite game within the office of Nintendo. Hmm. She said everyone in the company's playing it. We love the game. It's fabulous. And I said, Yeah, but but we never heard, you know, testing bug. She said, oh, don't worry about it. We got all the time in the world. <laughs> so, <laughs> but doesn't that just make you so mad? Yeah. Thanks for yeah. the deadline. So, so then yeah. we spent weeks with them tweaking and because they love the game, tweaking and doing this, and doing that. And we got all the way down to saying, all right, we're finally done. And Howard Phillips, I don't know if you remember Howard Phillips, who's a guy with bow tie, and he was in Nintendo Magazine. There was a cartoon with him. He was the game guru. He called me up and said, we have one bug we have to fix. And I said, there's no bugs, Howard. Well, come on, we're done. No, no, one bug, got to fix it. 
You gotta fix it. He said, you can lose the blob. You go to the edge of a cliff and you throw the jelly bean off. Well, the blob goes to where the jelly bean lands. So if you're at the edge of a cliff, he's way down there. You can whistle and get him to come back up. But sometimes you can't find you because of the caverns. Go ahead, Dave. You pick it up. Well, yeah. I mean, you have to try really hard to lose the blob. But um, <laughs> it can be done. Typically, what you do is you would um, you throw him a jelly bean, and he turns into this thing. And then you climb the ladder, and then you whistle, and he turns back into the blob. And if it's a ladder, he actually comes up with you, which is a double animation. He has to come all the way back up with. Yeah. And then he hops along with you. He's your sidekick again. But let's say you turned him into a coconut, picked him up like a bowling ball, and you threw him two screens away, and then you whistle, and he's down there, and he comes over to try to find you, and now he's three levels down, and there's no up or down in that cavern, right? So you could actually lose him. If, if you could still get to him, you can throw him a, humming, a, a honey jelly bean that turns him into a hummingbird, and he flies back up to you. Then you whistle, and he turns into the blob, and he comes down. But anyway, so th this guy's being adamant. She said, that's broken. If you can lose your blob and not be able to finish the game, the game is broken. And Howard insisted it was broken. Yeah. yeah. And so this is September. It's September, late September. I'm supposed to go on a cruise with a guy for his birthday. And I get this phone call. This, this needs to be done in the next 12 hours. You need to fix this. Now, how, how do you fix something when it's... Just think about it. It's, it's logically impossible to make sure that there's always a way to get the blob back, right? So what I did, at the time, it was originally we had a grape jelly bean that would turn the blob into a brick wall. Now, you should know that I like puns. I mean, I named Pitfall because you fall into pits. And, you know, I like puns. So I had to come up with some sort of a pun or alliteration or something that helped you as a mnemonic for what each flavor of jelly bean did for which transformation. So licorice starts with L and it becomes liquid ladder. Strawberry turns him into a bridge because of the Beatles song, Strawberry Bridge. And you know the Beatles song, Strawberry Bridge? Yeah, I remember that. Um, and grape wall, grape turned him into the wall. It's a wall. great wall of death. It's the grape wall. wall. Right? <laughs> All right, so you can grow and it's okay. You're supposed to grow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But anyway, it didn't really do much. It, it stopped bad guys from coming past a certain point, but you could just jump over them anyway. You know, it, it wasn't a big deal. So I took the grape wall out of the game. Because you didn't really need it to play the game. Right. And I changed the, the flavor from grape to ketchup. And then I wrote... <laughs> <laughs> and there's the growth. And <laughs> And, and then, then I wrote the logic so that the blob doesn't like the flavor of ketchup and he will not eat the ketchup jelly bean. And then I made it so that if the blob is on a different screen than you are, when you throw the ketchup and when it hits the ground, the blob catches up to you, teleports to you and is right there where the ketchup jelly bean hits the ground. So if you ever lose him, you throw ketchup on the ground and he shows up. And Howard was happy. And that made them happy. And, and, Howard and, was happy. And, and so the, everything was good at that yes, point. Then. It fit in yeah. the same number of bytes. But that's when we learned that if Nintendo is motivated, they can make ROMs, manufacture a product, get it on the shelves in two months. And they require us to do it in six. Wow. wow. You know, they give us six months. Now, if you own a boy in his blob, here's what you do. You select a jelly bean like a, like a licorice. And a blob standing next to you. And you take the licorice jelly bean 
and you toss it through the air. And while it's flying, change the flavor of the jelly bean <laughs> to ketchup. Yeah. He is confused. He will catch the jelly bean and he will turn into a great ball. <laughs> That's still in there? Yes. I haven't been able to do it, but people have told me that. I mean, the graphics are still in there. I mean, yeah, we didn't think we're going to change all that. Oh, I'm definitely you know, going to yeah. try this. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, we we learned the hard way that we killed ourselves. I mean, the last two weeks of the project to make that deadline, we were working 16 hours a day. The last four days, 20 hours a day. Goodness. The last yeah. two days, 24 hours, and then we flew to CES. And we demonstrated the game during the show day, during the day, and then went back to our room where we had a development system and fixed bugs so that the code would be clean to get final, to the final. It would be final. Yeah. It was the worst. I mean, we, we did all-nighters all the time in the video game business, but this was just bad. It was and the I, worst. And I got to tell you, I am very bad at this. I have to put cool stuff in a game. I mean, the reason my games have cool stuff in it is because I put them in there and I, I take extra time to do it. And I'm in one of these 20 hour days and you turn the blob into a cola bubble and you climb into him and you can go underwater. It's one of the tricks, mm -hmm. you can go underwater. And I said, you know, if you're riding a cola bubble underwater, there have to be little bubbles coming out of your cola bubble that show you're underwater. Yeah. So I called the artist at 11 o'clock at night and I said, give me a bubble. <laughs> I called the sound effects guy at 11 o'clock at night and said, give me a, you know, a pop yeah. sound, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I spent four hours coding this so that the bubbles would fly out and the popping sound when the bubbles would pop and all that. And I just, I had to do it. I had no control over myself. I had to take four hours to do this little feature. You gotta do what you gotta do. You gotta, you do, gotta do what right. you gotta do. Yeah. That's it. So six months later, as a postscript to a boy in his blob, six months later, I was at June CES because it released at Christmas. I was at June CES in a meeting with Nintendo. Nintendo liked us now. We'd proven our, our worth. Yeah. And I left that meeting and Juana was standing there and she said, oh, Gary, come here for a second. Someone wants to talk to you. So she takes me around the corner, the corner and there's Shigeru Miyamoto. And he said, I just want to tell you that A Boyness Blob is one of my favorite games. Wow. And I thought that was pretty damn good. That's impressive. That was yes, pretty impressive. Yeah. So we did a lot of work with Nintendo after that. To this day, we still do work for Nintendo. We still consult for them. So it's been a long relationship with Nintendo. That, I mean, that's that's amazing in, in that right. I mean, to, to earn the trust and then to and then to be able to work with them long term. That's, yeah. I mean, that's a, says it's, a tremendous amount. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and so has that relationship with Nintendo then, it sounds like it's transcended, it transcended into the different companies that you all have had or started or oh yeah yes yeah right that, so, that said all the people that we know have all retired or died yeah yeah no. that's true <laughs> yeah true <laughs> we, we were very close with howard lincoln who was the president of nintendo a chairman of the board mm -hmm. in the u.s mm -hmm. and, and um uh he passed recently so he was one of our last people that we that we really knew well. Wow. Well, as far as the, I guess, the balance of the years with Absolute, uh, so after A Boy and His Blob, it hits the stores, becomes a, a very big hit. What, what were the next several years like? Because I want to make sure that we get, that we can kind of touch on at least, I guess, the, the, the totality of Absolute and then what led you all on to Skyward and everything like that. 
How much time do we have? Um, we have got, by the clock, six more minutes, but we have a 30-minute buffer. And, there, I, and, and I did want to make sure that we could take some questions. Yeah, I was thinking, well, I want to go right to questions so we don't go too further, too far out. Is, okay, is that okay? Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. I think let's Well, do. I mean, we can finish the timeline anyway. Okay. Yeah. Every, every video game company has, you know, the, the video game cycle is going up and down and up, up and, and down. down. Yes. You know, and this, this, this platform just goes away, completely falls flat. New platform comes up. The hardest thing about our jobs over 40 years was every two years a new game console came out and we had to start from scratch. We had to write new drivers. We had to write new compressors. We had to write new audio you know, generators. We had to do sound effects. We had to do tools to do drawing for this because the pixels are in a different order than, than the last one. So is that you making blue boxes, I yes, guess, for each, absolutely. each system? Every, blue every boxes two boxes plus years. software. Yeah, I, I would love, we don't have time today, and for well, maybe we can get into it, but I would just love to hear the lineage of the blue box and how that has progressed over time just, too. Just understand that for every line of code we write in a game that actually gets published, we've written three lines of code in tools and offline stuff, and all this other stuff that we have to do. Yeah. And that's why there's 30 people in the back lab. Mm -hmm. All this stuff that has to be done and it starts over every two years when a new console wow. comes out. The SNES came out, the Genesis, Genesis <laughs> came out, the you know Xbox or the PlayStation, you know the Xbox. Every time a new console comes out, we had to start from scratch to be able to make games for it. Yeah, so see, see we, we don't ever see that as consumers <laughs> no, because we just no. think that, oh, Nintendo, Nintendo said it was okay for them to make that and they made it. Oh, that's awesome. And that's really the extent of it. Yeah. And so uh, again, there's cycles and the thing that you're really good at is now passe and you got to start over and, and do this. So it, at one point we ended up transitioning from console games in absolute to Skyworks making games we decided to treat the internet as the next game console and make games in shockwave was the tool we used and made dozens i mean i don't know how many, how many games we ended up with 500 we made 500 games for that for the internet we did internet games so there was a website many many years ago 1997 early internet game websites started coming out we go and play free games Shockwave was one. Yes. Addicting Games was one. We launched one called The Candy Stand. And The Candy Stand was owned by Nabisco. And we had gone to Nabisco and pitched a partnership with them. They had a brand called Lifesavers, which was old, you know, candy brand, $600 million a year. And they wanted to revive it. So we created the Lifesavers Candy Stand. And what it was, was it was a channel of games all sponsored by brands of the eventually all of Nabisco, but initially just the candy brands. And um, we launched it as a free site and uh, it really started a new paradigm on the internet of these brand sponsored games. It quickly grew to over 10 million people a month Harvard did a, a business case study on it. It was featured on the cover of Promotions Magazine as the new way to do internet marketing for consumer brands. It's a huge, huge hit. And we ended up working on that site for probably close to 10 years and did 500 games on it. And many of the best games on it were done by David Crane and no one knew because our names weren't on the games. And 
you just to give you a sense of the size of the audience, um, Dave did a billiards game uh, that ended up being one of the most popular games on that site. And uh, that billiards game was played over one billion times a year. Wow. And that was one of about 100 games on that site. So it was really nothing more than a project progression of every two years a new console comes out. Well, yeah. So let's make the internet the next console and make games for the internet. It, but yeah. this was all done under Skyworks, not, Skyworks. not, not, not under Absolute. So it, was at, it was after Absolute. 1995. Yeah. Okay. It was Skyworks. Yeah. And so that became our business for a number of years. Um, really pushing the internet as far as we could push it in terms of games. I see. So was the, I mean, was it a, a conscious decision then to change over to Skyworks because of the shift to the internet or what, what led to, I guess, the, to the demise of yeah, absolute, to, to the demise or absolute shutting down? We shut down absolute because we had been, well, it's interesting. Skyworks is, it was what it was because of the demise of absolute. We were licking our wounds from so many manufactured products. And when you manufacture a product, you manufacture 100,000 units. You're, you're wiring Nintendo uh, $1.5 million. Oof. And that is yeah. three to four months before you ship it. And then 90 days before Walmart pays you. So you're out six months from all the money you've put out to manufacture. And if it doesn't sell, I already told you what happens to Walmart. They yeah. call you up and tell you to stick it in their ear. So, so and, the, the and, float would kill you. So the float would kill you. <laughs> and that's not including the development money yeah, you paid salaries. It's yes. not just the float because, as Dan said, yeah. there's the cost of development. But there's also... You have to, Nintendo never lost a dime because you paid them in advance for them to manufacture your product. Whether those games sold Whether or they not. Sold it's or a not. good business. And yeah. so you have to predict six months or more out, how many of these games do you think we're going to sell? Now, let's say that we are going to sell 90,000 of these units. Okay. All right, we have two choices. If we believe we're going to sell 90,000, we can order 80,000 and not end up with any uh, inventory stuck. Or we can order 100,000. Mm -hmm. And, you know, end up losing 10% of it. Well, it's, this business had a 10% profit margin. If you misjudged how many you're going to sell yeah, by 10% in brutal. either direction. That's brutal. In either direction, you lose money. Yeah. And, and yeah. where if we were manufacturing a Nintendo cartridge, we could do it for five bucks. Uh -huh. That's all that's in there from electronics. Anyway. But Nintendo charged us 15 because they had a markup. Pretty significant. So did Sony. So did Microsoft. So did Sega. So it got to the point where the margins were so small. And if you weren't spending money on TV and you had one or two failures, you were done. Hmm. So we shut down Absolute in 95 after a couple of bad bets. One big yeah. bet we made was on the Sega CD. They added a CD yeah. drive onto the Genesis. Yep. Sega was very close with us. And we, I went to Japan, met with them. We had meetings, told us how big Sega CD was going to be. We bet the farm on it. And three months after we bet the farm on it, they took it out of the stores. Wow. That, that kind of hurt. So those are all unpleasant memories. We just say we yes. <laughs> yeah. We, we transitioned. Well, it from, tells a whole story, though. It we, does. We yeah. transitioned from Absolute to Skyworks. Now, Dan for no inventory and no physical product. Dan that was didn't, the join, whole us. Point. Dan didn't yeah. join us with Skyworks and went off to do a number of other yeah. publishing companies. 
Yeah, I went over. I went off and started a, a CD-ROM publishing company and did a few games with with uh, GT Interactive, uh, which was a big uh, publisher of, of CD-ROM games. Then I was hired by a company called Majesco Entertainment and worked for them for about eight years and headed up their product development. And I stayed in the console business. So from there, I did Game Boy Advance, Game Boy Black and White, Game Boy Color. And then we did N64 games. We did GameCube games. And then I produced a number of PS1, PS2, PS3 games and yeah. up until Xbox when I left. But that basically takes us through the end of Absolute. Yeah. Right? Well, and, and I appreciate that because it's tough to squeeze all of that into an hour. But I did But I did want to make sure that we could tell an entire story. It's yes. kind of a start, a start yep. to end yep. on that. And, and, and I appreciate that. Thank you all. One question that, that I've always been curious about, the historical preservation aspects of your work. So when Absolute shut down, when you all left Activision, what, what, what happened to all those uh, artifacts, source code for games, uh, th things like that? Did, you, did that. you get to keep that or what? Let, let me address that. Okay. Um, when we left Atari to found Activision, we were founding a competitor. And there is a, a written rule that you don't take anything but the shirt off your back. <laughs> Okay, you could not, if I, were to, if I had walked out of there with source code, I would have been sued and I'd be in jail. Okay. okay. They are that serious about their IP when it goes out the door, and yet none of those companies had any preservation uh, policy at all. I know. In fact, the guys who, who run the National Video Game Museum, they got most of their stuff by dumpster diving outside of Atari. Atari mm -hmm. would throw it away, no problem. But if you took it with them, they would, they would send the sheriff after you. Okay. So every time we left a company or closed down a company, that IP belonged to the company, it belonged to the shareholders, it belonged to the bankruptcy court or whatever direction you went, wow. you couldn't take it with you. So there was no preservation whatsoever in the video game business. <laughs> Terrible. I mean, so it, it, we it do hurts, not have source code gut. from Absolute Entertainment. It hurts my gut. It really does. We do not have source code from Activision. We do not have source code from most of these um, things we've worked on. Wow. Now we're much better at it. Now we're preserving. We have, we have uh, some amount of Skyworks code. Okay. Uh, but I, the stuff before that, it just pains you to think. However, to it, it do does. that, we had to go back and buy the Skyworks asset. Yeah, I had to buy the Skyworks assets from, you know, from yeah. the court after investors had bought the company from us and yeah. then closed it. We had to go back to the bankruptcy court and buy back the assets to get the source. Wow. It's like wow. crazy. That, that is. Not, it, not like we should have owned it ourselves, you no, know? Yeah. No. But, well, but what the game industry should do, and this is a lesson for the game industry, is when you work for a game company and you work on a game and you leave, maybe you don't take your code with you, but that code gets archived at the National yes. Video Game Museum. Yes. So yeah. that it's always preserved. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, personally, I think that needs to happen as well, because so much of so much of the history now is spoken history. And it is it is sessions like these that keep the that keep the idea alive and keep the stories alive. And it's a shame that you can't go back from an archival standpoint and pull yeah, those artifacts like, back out. Candy stand. I mean, I get people writing me saying, you know, can I go back and play any of those games your brother did? And yes. those are all lost because permanently the, lost. The site's no longer there. Yeah. Yeah. 
and there's nowhere to that's even even i mean we were talking about console games mostly now you start talking about internet games and the server's down yeah right (laughs) it's gone it's gone i I mean if you did the greatest game of all time on the iphone 5 you can't play that game today yeah and you can't resurrect it you can't there's no way that game is gone forever and ever yeah and that's just a problem that has to be solved yeah which is why we built uh, audacity games to make physical cartridges for the collectors but that's just a lead-in into our next exactly <laughs> it's one i'm really looking forward to and that's going to be tomorrow morning so uh, so gentlemen thank you all so much i mean I, that that is really a great capstone to the discussion we had last yep. night around activision because it, it brings some closure to to i think the the topic that everybody wonders about at some point in time i mean there are so many big fans of activision absolute's probably a bit lesser known just from a title standpoint yeah but it's equally as important important from a historical standpoint there's there's no doubt about it yep. so so thank you all very much and there's a lot of absolute we didn't cover we just didn't have enough time yeah well and the, the, con- the continuity is that the one thing you can take with you uh when you leave a company is whatever's in your brain and the fact that you have uh, honed your art yes you, you own your art your ability although in your case when you left atari you couldn't take what was in your brain necessarily. Well, you had to re-engineer and relearn the system. They had to do all the back engineering and such. The whole issue yeah. is you, they, they can't stop you from practicing your art at another company. Right. Yeah. And so we are the continuity and that's why we like to come to these shows and tell the story. Yeah. Yep. And that's why this is so important because it needs to be told. It, it, even if it's just, even if you've heard the stories before, if there's just another nugget that comes out that helps to fill it out and, and flesh it out even that much more, it's worth every single bit of it. Yeah. And with that, does anybody have any questions? Okay, we're gonna go over here because you did not get to ask, you did not get to ask a question last night, and I apologize for that. So your first step. Um, uh, in I think uh, there, there was a remake of a boy and his blob. Did you have any creative control over that? I think it was by WayForward. It was by WayForward. We did not. I think they did a nice job. It was very cute. It was you know enjoyable, but it had nothing to do with us. Again, that's another thing that people don't even think about is they think of me as the creator of Pitfall, but Activision owns Pitfall, not me. I do not own Pitfall. I don't own the copyright. I don't own the source code. I don't own anything. The company I worked for owns my product. And so that Boyness Blob was owned by... um, Absolute. Absolute. Thank you. I keep wanting to say Audacity. It was owned by Absolute. And when Absolute's assets were purchased, someone else got it. And so they could turn around and license the title of something that I created. It's just just willy nilly whenever they want it because they own it and I don't. So now now to give them the other developer just a bit of uh, credit when they started that project, they called us and we had a call with them and they said they were going to do it. And did we want to get involved? Mostly David. And did David want to? you know, see what they were doing. And he said, no, and that was that. We had moved on. And and we had been moved on to other things, but we wished them well. Yeah, that was actually published by Majesco when I was there. So I had helped coordinate getting those rights, which to this day I kick myself for, because we would have loved to have had them back. And uh, worked with WayForward on on getting that that done. You had a question. Yes. Joey. (laughs) <laughs> yes, Joe. Hi, Joey. Hi, Joey. Um, it would it would have 
been funny if it would be funny if like if you it would have been funny if like while you were while you were like um working on a boy in the blob you added a, another bean called the jalapeno bean and and when your blob ate it and and your blob would eat the bean and when he said and, and when he ate it he would say how how have you been bro <laughs> i like it yeah we're gonna put it in the sequel or he could turn into fire and do something <laughs> i love it oh. How jalapeno are you? I, I, I think we got it. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. That is brilliant. We love it. That is awesome. Good. Yeah, it's going gonna to have some great dad jokes someday. Yeah. He is. He yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, uh, you all uh, worked with the uh, Penn & Teller game, right? Yes. Yes. How do you feel about the legacy of, of Desert Bus? We're very proud. We love We're it. very proud. Yes, we had... We, we were sitting in a conference room in our office. We got to work with Penn and Teller for about six months. And we were in the conference room during one of the creative sessions and Penn looked at all of us and said, I want to make the most boring game of, of all. <laughs> we laughed, it's really funny. And he said, no, I'm serious. It sounds said, like him, doesn't it? He said, I want to make a game where you're driving a bus from Tucson, Arizona to Las Vegas in real time. <laughs> he said that'll take about eight hours and then when you actually get to las vegas you get one point <laughs> and if you have a breakdown along the way you get towed back to the beginning in real time <laughs> and there were a couple of stops on the way and you stop and you open the door but there's never anyone at the stop yeah and the only thing that happens after about four and a half hours a bug splats on the window. <laughs> and you wipe the wiper to clean it. And we said, okay. And, and the we, entire time, you have to drive the bus. Right, because... You have to keep the bus on the road. The, the wheel has a shimmy to it. And if you put the joystick down, drift off the, the bus will go right off the road. Right. And here comes the tow truck. So you can't make it run on autopilot. So you have to continually tap that joy pad for eight hours straight, which I can tell you once we created the game, the marathon testing we had with the testers getting sleep and coming in and playing this for eight hours at a time. And one would say, okay, I gotta go to the bathroom. You ready? Here's the joystick. Tag team, tag team. And uh, we you were- You haven't we're, lived if you haven't had a tester come running out going, we got four points. And, and you know, we, we, <laughs> we finished that, we finished the whole, the whole game, it was a, a number of modules that were incredibly creatively done and it was headed up by, by um, uh, Barry Marks, who Gary had mentioned earlier, and he was really the genius behind it with Penn and Teller. Uh, and the game never really saw the light of day because- Of the Sega CD mess. The uh, Sega CD mess. But we are, we are proud that well, the- Well, hang on. Oh. You mentioned the Desert Bus legacy. Does everyone know what the Desert Bus legacy is, Gary? So what happened was the game never came out. And it, to this day, it's, it's one of the saddest things ever. It was a brilliant, brilliant game. But it never saw the light of day because Sega pulled the platform out. 
So what happened was years later, someone resurrected Desert Bus and had the idea to use it as a fundraiser for children's cancer, is it? Children's Hospital. And they, every year they use it to raise money and they've raised millions and millions of dollars over the years. In November they do it. Doing these marathons to see how many points you can get. It's called Desert, Desert Bus. Bus for Hope. Desert Bus for Hope. The local chapter of Extra Life, which is the group that does it and then donates the money to them, is their local chapters here. Beautiful. So check those guys out. It's for an incredible cause. And uh, we're very proud that we helped create this this product with Penn and Teller that has gone on to to help lots of children. Yep. Yeah, that's amazing. And it is that boring. It is that boring. It is so bad fun to play, though. Well, I mean, it is just amazing. It's it is. It's another example. There have been a few games where the design literally took five minutes. I mean, that was Penn just off the top of his head, and in five minutes he had stated all those those facts that we're going to go into the game. Now there's a thousand hours of programming work to make something like that happen, but you know, it's just this brilliant idea that happens. I mean, I drew pitfall up on a sheet of paper in five minutes. I mean, I had the entire game on a piece of paper in five minutes and then it took hours, you know, a thousand hours to make the thing happen. But there are times that there are inspirations and they're just very quick inspiration. Freeway. I had the idea for freeway while riding a bus to CES. Um, we go from the hotels to the seat convention center, back and forth, down 10 lanes of Lakeshore Drive. And I looked out the bus, and here's this guy. Parking was $20 a day over here, and it was $10 a day over here. So he had parked in the $10 a day and ran across 10 lanes of traffic to get to the convention center to save 10 bucks. I turned to the guy I was riding with, and I said, there's an idea for a video game. Yeah. And my next game was Freeway, where... You know, people which became chickens crossing the road. Yeah. Yes, sir. Is there any chance of a desert bus uh, collab to as DLC for the latest Penn and Teller VR game? Um, I don't know, but you That's know a good the we, we just passed I guess in nineteen in nineteen in two thousand fifteen we passed the twentieth anniversary of the creation and I was in contact with them for six months saying, hey, why don't we finally resurrect it and bring it to mobile and other other things? And they eventually came back to me and said, look, the game has got a strong following underground, and we really like the fact that it's underground kind of fits our brand. So no, we're not gonna really put it in, in anything else. They may It may go into that, but I would assume they'd like to keep it as it is. Thinking back through the idea of like whenever you guys started all this, it was very simplistic on single screen games. Then it moves through all the later PlayStation, Nintendo 64, and everything else. But with mobile games, it's come back to very simple single screen games. Is that something you enjoy or is it frustrating at this point that it's not as it's simplistic and better, I guess, in, in a lot of ways? We love it. Gary? Yeah. Well, there's something really funny there. What's funny about it is we started with single screen games. And then we ran that wave all the way to 1985. And then here comes the internet. We're back to single screen games. And so we started doing games on the internet and we are really good at single screen games. And we did the best games on the internet for a number of years. 
because we were just hesitant. We, we, we honestly, to be honest, we were the only professional game people working on the internet at that point. It is Nobody not, else had figured it out yet. Not just single screen games, but small footprint games. Yeah, small footprint. We games. were so good at writing in 2K. Casual that, games. That we were able to write games that were small enough that they could download on a 14-4 modem and not have you waiting 20 minutes for a download of a game. So it was like we were concert pianists and we were at a concert and everybody else was playing chopsticks because they had never been trained. We knew how to make games. So we go on the internet, we make these amazing games and people are saying, I don't even know how these people do this because they're not in the same field as us. And then we do that for a number of years. And then 2008, the iPhone comes out. Bingo, once again. They're small, they're little, they're light, small games. We went on the iPhone in 2008, and for about three years, we were on the iPhone under Skyworks, and we had six games that reached number one in the store. And we did fabulous work on that device for two or three years until it became so overcrowded with games that you can't make any money on it anymore. And do you remember when Zynga was started? They created what they called casual games. And what that meant was games for the whole family, where the adult women would like the games and that sort of thing. And I kept saying, excuse me, look at Atari and Activision. They were played in the living room with the whole family. We've been doing casual games since 1977. And, And you know, the funny thing is a lot of those casual games are ideas that we would joke about in 1982. <laughs> you know, we would sit there and say, hey, so imagine you got a game where you're a waitress and you got to serve all these people. <laughs> and then comes Diner Dash. Well, you- I've had a number of people tell me that Diner Dash was, was really inspired by Pressure Cooker. So That's probably right. It was yeah. the first game that had menu That's and right. you built stuff to the menu and delivered the food. So... Yeah. We got our, so the answer is we got yes. Our fingers in the hole. We have you know, come on. small footprint games are are what we love to do. We love small games, and we'll lead into well, tomorrow. And, and I'll tell you, it's not yeah. easy. Okay, I was on a panel with the creator of God of War. All right, and he and I are sitting there chatting, and he said, "You know, I used to play your games and these little single screen games, and they were fun." You had something you, you would do, and it was really fun. And you said, do you know how hard it is to make something fun? I tried to do it, this guy tells me. <laughs> I tried to make a single-screen game it. where there was something fun to do. I said, I couldn't do it. He said, I can write, you know, these massive movie-like games like God of War and, you know, cast it and script it and do all this kind of stuff. I couldn't make a single-screen game that was fun. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's actually a, a, a skill. It's something that we, we are good at and enjoy it. Yeah. Yep. One thing I've heard many people say... And I've never actually seen any evidence of this, but um, I've heard many people say that, oh, those games in the old days, they used to hire psychiatrists to design those games. No. And I'm like, no, they, they didn't. They were no. really clever people figuring stuff out. Yeah, no, that's not true. And again, we made games that were fun for us to play. If we couldn't have fun playing the game, we would put it on the shelf or throw it away. So... You know, that's the thing. The reason they were fun is because we found them fun. Yeah. And it's a skill. I mean, I find to this day I'm working on a game and I'll say, this is not yet fun. But, you know, if I did X, Y, and Z, I'll bet it would be fun. So I'd spend a day coding it and pick it up and play it. And say, I was right. It's fun now, you know. So it's figuring out what's fun was, was a skill, something we used to do. And that's a lead in. I'm going to tell the story again very quickly I because I did it yesterday. 
we at one point we decided it was a bad idea, but we decided to bring in investors in Skyworks. So we brought in some big money people with big money and big brains and Yale brains and Princeton brains and Wharton School brains. And they sat in a room and asked us to teach them the video game industry. You know, what's the magic? And I explained the brutality of the industry, knowing having been in it for 40 years, I've got old bruises, that, you know, you start making a video game and out of 10, three may make money, seven are gonna fail. Some are gonna fail disastrously, some are never gonna come to market. Out of the three that come to market, and have any success at all, a couple of them will break even to make a little money and one may be a huge success. So you're hoping for that one out of 10 that's gonna fund the company for years, whether it be the pitfall or the angry birds or whatever it is. So the Princeton guy who was definitely the sharpest tool in the shed, he said, well, I have a question. And I said, yes. And he said, all right, you explained all this. Why not just to do the three games? Don't do the other seven. And I was like, okay, it's time to go. <laughs> and that was the end of that discussion. So this is what we have to deal with as game designers. <laughs> You're making a creative product. I mean, you look at all the movies that are made and how you like some of them and you hate others. And you wonder how some of those others even got made. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's a creative process, and there's no predicting. There is no predicting. No predicting. Yeah. Do you know that Angry Birds was not Angry Birds until a year and a half later? That game was an entirely different game idea that went through 50 iterations until someone figured out that the only thing that was fun was was this little bonus level they had in. There was about one 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 fiftieth of the game where you pulled this thing back and flung stuff and knocked over buildings. And someone said, let's just make that the whole game. That was it. <laughs> you just never know. Yeah. You can, when these people do these 400 page game design documents before they go and spend $250 million, I'm on the floor crying, laughing. Well, you really think you're gonna predict what the game's gonna be before you start? It's not gonna happen. Well, another pet peeve is it's expensive to have internal design groups. So a company that wants to design a great game, they should have their own people that they've nurtured through other game projects and everything. And, but it's a fixed cost, it's expensive. You gotta pay all these salaries and you gotta keep all these people around. So a lot of companies just say, we're just gonna go out, we're gonna contract development from these other developers. And the way we explain how, how bad that idea is compared to the more expensive idea is that we say, do you think that if you went to, who are the Angry Birds guys? Rovio. Rovio. You think if you went to Rovio and asked them to do a contract game for you, they're going to give you their Angry Birds? <laughs> you know, no. no, they're going to publish Angry Birds themselves and they're going to give you a piece of crap. Right? <laughs> yep. So, anyway, that's a totally different, totally a non sequitur, but it's a pet peeve. Anything else? Yeah, any other questions? Did you ever imagine, whenever you guys started this thing, you're making these games and it has, there's a pitfall and it has this huge run. Do you ever imagine the re-releases that come later? And I know you guys don't get paid for that stuff, but like it's the idea behind like the Atari flashback shows up, and all of a sudden it's 20, 30 years later, and there's a whole new generation of people buying that game, playing that game, and talking about it. We could not have predicted that we would be making Atari 2600 games 40 years in the future. 
No, I didn't know if I would be alive 40 years in the future. But, but no, I mean, what we, we predicted that the video game business was going to be as big as it is because it was going to be as big as the movie business and better because it's interactive. So when we were doing this, we knew we were onto something really big. Um, but the idea of something that was a hit 20 years ago, I mean, Disney had that idea. You remember they used to have these seven movies that they'd put out every seven years because they'd get the next group of kids. So maybe we could have drawn a parallel from that. But no, the idea of, of the flashback coming back and actually getting some value out of our old IP, um, that never entered my mind because I'm a game maker. I make new games. I mean, you know, I have to do something that's fun for me. And one of my most successful strategies over time was I would play all the games that are out there and I would be so sick and tired of a particular genre that I would do something different because my game's not going to come out for a year. So if you don't want to be doing the same genre that's popular, you know, when sports games were popular, I did a space game and then everybody started doing space games. And so I did a different kind of game. And it's because I was tired of the, the genre, came up with a new genre and lo and behold, everybody got tired of that genre by the time my new game came out and it was a very successful process, you know, but it was always something new. It was never, how do I come back to something old? I mean, boy and his blob, you know, the, the caverns were very much pitfall-like, and that was all intentional. I mean, it, yeah, let's just put him down in a cavern. Caverns worked. Plus, it's a good place for a ladder to work. You know, I mean, it's a platform game. But, but no, I, I never thought of that. No, and we never thought. We, we never thought that what we were doing in 1982, 1983 would be something that we would be talking about in 2022. No. Yeah, not, in, not fact, in, your wildest in fact, the whole retro game movement was not something we predicted. But then when you look at it, the games are more fun. <laughs> That's why people are here at this conference is because yes. the old games were fun games to play. That's right. And yeah. I, you know, you look at Call of Duty, it's an interesting experience, but is there anybody in this room would call Call of Duty fun? You know? Yeah. It's how is it fun? It's not. Anyway. Yeah. We'll, we'll do, sir, you had, we'll, we'll do one more question, sir. You're there in the back. Uh, are, are, you said that all the candy stand games are gone? Uh, yeah. So there are games from shockwave.com I was able to find on archive.org. Are none of the candy stand games safe? The problem is that uh, the, to be able to run a game on archive.org, you have to have the right plugin installed in your browser the Shockwave plugin or the Flash plugin, and that becomes a real mess. Um, as far you can't find most candy stand games because the candy stand was eventually sold to price um, to Publishers Clearinghouse. Publishers Clearinghouse took it down, took all the games down. So you you may find the odd game on archive.org, but I've never had any real luck finding most of them. Yeah. It's really sad. And people, I get, I get emails like, Dan, once a month, come on, you, you got to have a source to billiards. You got to have, the, actually the most favorite game we hear the most about is Candy Stand Mini Golf. Candy Stand Mini Golf was just a peak of creativity. It was a brilliant game. I didn't work on it. It's a brilliant game. Absolutely brilliant game. And I wish I could get my hands on it, but yeah. to no avail. Well, gentlemen, thank you all so much. I mean, it's it's been a great a great seminar. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great way to round out the story we started yesterday. So, you know, 
in case you guys don't know, we have a booth and we're selling a new Atari 2600 game. If anybody wants to come by and take a look at it, we have it and we'll be there tomorrow and we're, uh, and we'll talk about that. Sell, we'll talk about tomorrow about at 1130. Yeah. yeah, yes. we're yeah. Thank you, Dan. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Tomorrow. Games. Games. Yep. Cool. Thank you all. Congratulations, you made it to the end of another episode of the Broken Token Podcast. I promise they'll do better next time. Just go easy on them guys, they don't have a lot to work with. Since Whitney is my dad, I'll be nice and get on to the closing business. Please visit our website at brokentoken.com for articles, reviews, restoration logs, direct show downloads, and expanded show notes for this and every episode. We want to hear your feedback, comments, rants, raves, and otherwise, both good and bad. Drop us a line via email at podcast.brokentoken.com or use the contact page on the podcast website. You can call us at 470-2-CALL-BT. That's 470-222-5528 and leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you and we might play your message on air in the next episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Broken Token and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash brokentoken. Brett and Whitney are always posting up new content between the official episodes and it's a great way to stay involved with the show between the shows. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and just about any other podcast directory you can think of. Just search for Broken Token and subscribe to the show. Like what you hear? Please consider leaving us a review wherever you found the show as the reviews help us in search rankings and visibility. Once again, thanks for listening, and as my dad always says, keep your quarters clean and game on. If you're still listening, then you know what's usually at this part of the show. Well, unfortunately, I didn't have anything to put here since it was just me recording an intro. But rest assured, if you hung in this long and listened this far into the show, Whitney and I love you. Thank you for listening.